You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Ted. It's always a blessing to be able to share the word with you. And of course, excited to be together this morning and excited just to have some time sitting at the feet of Jesus and just really allowing him to speak to us. So let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for once again giving us the opportunity to come together to gather around the name of your son, Jesus. And we are so grateful that he is our Lord and he is our Savior and that he has gone to a cross for us and risen victorious. Thank you so much, Lord God, for being able to take bread and to take a cup and to remember and celebrate his death until he returns. And what a glorious, glorious day that will be. Father, we thank you also for the blessing of being able to lift up our voices and to sing songs of praise to you. And we thank you, Lord God, for putting in us a spirit of praise and a desire, Lord God, to worship you because you are deserving. Father, we thank you also so much for the word that you have given to us in the scriptures and the word that you continue to speak to us. Because when we look at a book we may think that this is just a dead word. It's just something that is on a screen or typed on pages. But Lord, we know that your word is anything but dead. Your word is alive, it's living, it's active. And we thank you, Lord God, for your living word in our midst. And we pray now that as we spend some time considering a few passages of scripture, we pray that you would be speaking to us through your Holy Spirit that your word would come to life in each one of our hearts and in us as a community. We are grateful, Lord God, for the blessing of being able to study the words that you put in the mouth of your prophet Ezekiel, the things that you showed him, the things that you spoke through him. And these last couple of weeks, we have been considering them, and we will continue to consider them together this morning. So as always, Lord God, we just ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom. We pray that it would be you who is speaking to us and that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here this morning. It's always great to be together. Thank you for allowing me to spend a few minutes sharing with you some things from the Word of God. Most of you have been hearing now for quite a few weeks that we have been studying and reading the book of Ezekiel. And because Ezekiel is 48 chapters, and because we're working through at a chapter a day, that works to be about seven weeks, or almost two months. And hopefully, as you have been reading it and studying it, the Lord has been powerfully speaking to you. It is an incredibly powerful book. It is a deep book. It is a rich book. It's a challenging book. Ephraim shared that last week, that there are things in Ezekiel that are challenging. According to the schedule that we're following today, we are reading together Ezekiel chapter 36. 
Actually, the bulk of the time that we're going to spend together today, I want to look at what we're going to read tomorrow, chapter 37. But before we do that, I want to just kind of give a, 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 a summary intro into what has been going on as we have gotten now to Ezekiel chapter 37. Because again, if you pick up the Bible and read a chapter, and then the next day read another chapter, and the next day read another chapter, that's a, that's a wonderful pattern to be following. But we may sometimes kind of lose track of the larger sweep of things. So what I wa actually want to do is read two verses by way of intro. Again, ultimately we're getting to Ezekiel 37. But I want to go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 1. To Ezekiel chapter 1. And I just want to read one verse, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 2. And this is one of these verses that when you read it, you probably just quickly gloss over because most of what's in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 2 is a date. And it's a date that for most of us really doesn't mean anything. But Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 2, it says, On the fifth month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. So usually that's the kind of introductory verse that we read and doesn't really mean anything to us, so then we just go on and we keep reading. But of course, if you're trying to figure out the context in which the word of the Lord first came to Ezekiel, it's helpful to understand. Well, when Ezekiel says on the fifth month, in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, what, what setting, what, what place does that put him in? And it's helpful for us to understand that. Now, most of you are probably not familiar with King Jehoiakim, and that's okay. King Jehoiakim was the son of one of the, the most godly reforming kings that Judah ever saw, King Josiah. And King Josiah actually had three different sons sit on the throne. And Jehoiakim was one of those sons that sat on the throne. Jehoiakim, though, he didn't rule very long. He only reigned about three months. And then in the year 597, which again probably doesn't mean much to us, but 597 B.C., so about 600 years before Jesus came into the world, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came up against Jerusalem. And at that time, took the king, Jehoiakim, into captivity. So as soon as you hear the name Jehoiakim, if you were an Israelite living at that time or even close to that time, immediately what you thought of was captivity. Jehoiakim was the king who went into captivity. Now, for those of you who have been participating in the 2 Samuel study, you may recall that we have been looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most incredible promises that the Lord made to his people. And he promised David that you would have a son to sit on my throne forever. You would have a dynasty that would last forever. Well, Jehoiakim was in that line. Jehoiakim was a descendant of David. Jehoiakim was in that line of kings that was to sit on the throne forever. But he's been taken into captivity. So Lord, that promise that you made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, is that, is that, is that over? Is that promise over? Were we putting our hope in something that ultimately is not going to come to pass? Is the line of David going to be extinguished? God, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten your promise? Have you forgotten us? The name Jehoiakim is a name of captivity. 
Well, as far as we know, that same year, 597, when Jehoiakim went into captivity, that also was the year that Ezekiel went into captivity. So as Ezekiel is receiving the word of the Lord, he's not receiving the word of the Lord in the comfort of his own living room. He's not receiving the Lord through a Bible on iPod or however we might listen to it in our car as we're driving around. Ezekiel was receiving the Lord as a captive, living in exile, with his captive king, Jehoiakim. Now it's interesting because about eight years earlier, in 605 B.C., Daniel had been taken into captivity. Daniel, however, was placed in the court of the king. So as Daniel is receiving the words of the Lord that are shared for us in the book by his name, he is actually living in the courts of the king, in Babylon. Well, Ezekiel was also receiving the word of the Lord in Babylon. But Ezekiel never saw the courts of the king. Ezekiel never had the privilege of turning down the king's rich food. Ezekiel was living as an exile in captivity in the exilic camps along with the rest of the Judahites who had been taken captive. So the context in which Ezekiel prophesies is the context of captivity. The context of being away from his homeland. And he and Daniel and actually Jeremiah as well, all three of them, prophesying at the same time but in very different settings. Daniel in the court of the king. Ezekiel living in the camps of the exiles. And Jeremiah actually remaining in Jerusalem. So this audience that Ezekiel had for much of the opening chapters of his book, this audience that Ezekiel had, they also had been taken into captivity. And so they were obviously a very discouraged lot. But there was a couple of things that they were holding on to, a couple of things that were giving them hope. Each morning when they looked up and they remembered, wow, we're living in Babylon. We've been taken here by force. A couple of things continued to give them hope in that incredibly discouraging circumstance. The city of Jerusalem still stood. Every now and then they would get reports from Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the west. It seemed like a far, far distant home from which they had been taken. But they knew that Jerusalem was still standing. Because in 605, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took Daniel, he spared the city. In 597, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jehoiakim and Ezekiel, he spared the city. So on both of those occasions, it looked like maybe this is the end of Jerusalem. But in fact, the Lord miraculously intervened. And so as those captives that were Ezekiel's audience considered what, what, is, what is worth living for, what gives us hope? What gives us reason to wake up in the morning? It's certainly not our life living here in exile. What gives us hope? Well, one thing was the city still stood. Jerusalem was still standing. And there was a second thing that gave those captives hope each morning that they woke up. The temple 
the temple was still standing. The temple of the Lord, the glorious temple that Solomon had built. In spite of everything that had transpired, in spite of the Assyrian incursion 150 years earlier, in spite of the Babylonian incursions twice before, the temple was still standing. And so Ezekiel's audience, there was two things that were giving them hope as they woke up each morning in the discouragement of exile, as they woke up each morning in the discouragement of captivity. There were two things that they were holding on to tenaciously, two things that gave them hope. Jerusalem is still standing. The temple is still standing. But it's interesting because when you read Ezekiel chapter 1 through 10, 10 through 20, 20 through 30 through 32, there is almost no hope in Ezekiel's message. It's a lot of judgment. And so you you would think, you know, here are the people of God who have been taken into captivity, who are living apart from the homeland, who are, are living as captives, who are are holding on to the last little bit of hope they have. Jerusalem is standing, and the temple is standing. You would think that as God raises up an anointed servant, as God raises up a prophet to be his mouthpiece, you would think that God would be speaking a message of hope through Ezekiel. But those first 12 years of Ezekiel's ministry are almost all the impending judgment of the Lord. Ezekiel, is this really what your audience needs to hear? They're a discouraged people. They're a displaced people. They have almost nothing in this life that's worth putting their hope in. And here you are relentlessly announcing and pronouncing and predicting the judgment of the Lord. Is that really what they need to hear? Well, of course, as a modern audience, that gives us an opportunity to take a step back and to ask ourselves, when God doesn't answer us the way he wants to, when God doesn't tell us what we want to hear, when God doesn't agree with our desires, our wants, what do we do? Do we go somewhere else? Do we walk away? Or do we humble ourselves and say, Lord, you know better than me. Lord, you know better than me. Lord, you know what I need to hear. It may not be what I want to hear, but it's what I need to hear. So at a point in the history of the people of God, where they're just on the brink of utter despair, you would think God's anointed mouthpiece would be speaking a message of hope. But instead, he speaks a message of judgment. And that's why for those of you who have been reading the book of Ezekiel, you realize through the first 32 chapters, the predominant message of Ezekiel is judgment. Judgment is coming. At this point now, it's unavoidable. There's no turning back. 
As you look at the history of the people of God, there were windows of time where God said, if you repent, if you turn back to me, I will avert judgment. But by the time Ezekiel is prophesying in the fifth year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, so about 592, 593 B.C., by the time Ezekiel is prophesying, the point of no return has been crossed. And God is not going to withhold his hand of judgment. And so the mouthpiece of the Lord is repeatedly declaring judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And I imagine that a lot of Ezekiel's audience didn't love hearing what Ezekiel had to say. They were probably saying, man, Ezekiel, we're, we're barely holding on to any hope here. We're barely holding on to any reason for encouragement here. And every time we come to you, every time you put on a one-act drama because he did some really interesting drama performances, every time you share a vision with us, every time the Lord reveals himself to you, it's actually not really what we were hoping to hear. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And so for 12 years, in fact, it says that Ezekiel was unable to speak except when the word of the Lord came to him. So for 12 years, Ezekiel was basically mute other than to speak the word of the Lord. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting calling the Lord placed on him. And so we see that if the people or God are not careful, they may be out of step with the Lord. If we as the people of God are not careful, if we are not paying attention to what the Lord is saying, we may find ourselves out of step with him. He's not going to change his message. He's not going to change his message. And so that, that, that early series of prophecy of Ezekiel are a tremendous word of caution for us as the people of God. Because Ezekiel was not saying what the people wanted to hear. He was saying what they needed to hear. Well, why? Why would a people living in captivity, with a people so discouraged, with the people on the brink of despondency, why would they need to hear a message of judgment? It's one of the big questions of the book of Ezekiel. Second verse that we're going to read by way of introduction. Chapter 33, chapter 33, verse 21. And again, it's one of these verses that we kind of skip over because it's got some dates in it, dates that don't mean too much. But now hopefully you're beginning to learn a couple of dates. Jehoiakim and Ezekiel, they go into captivity in 597, about 592, 593. Remember, in B.C., the years get smaller as you move through time. I always would get confused about that. So 1,000 B.C. moves forward to 900 B.C., moves forward to 800 B.C. So 597, Ezekiel and Jehoiakim are taken into captivity. About 592, 593, Ezekiel starts to prophesy to the exiles in captivity, primarily a message of judgment. Well, now in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21, it says, in the twelfth year of our exile. Okay, who's pretty quick with math? The twelfth year of their exile, what year would that have been? Not 590. 
Twelfth year. What was their year of captivity for Jehoiakim and Ezekiel? 597. Twelve years from 597? 585. Now, hopefully, for all of us, as we think of the year 585, we're thinking of an incredibly significant event that happened the year before. What happened in 586? Jerusalem and the temple fall. This is just one verse in Ezekiel, 48 chapters. I don't know how many verses. But if you don't read Ezekiel carefully, you miss this stuff. So now, again, looking at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the year 585 B.C., in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. It's done. Jerusalem is gone. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. One verse. This is what Jeremiah had been prophesying for 12 years. This is what, excuse me, this, well, Jeremiah had been prophesying it too. This is what Ezekiel had been prophesying for 12 years. Jerusalem is not going to make it. The temple is not going to make it. If you're putting your hope in a city, if you're putting your hope in a building, you're going to have no hope. One verse, two words in Hebrew, actually, a few more in English. The city has fallen. It's gone. So th the only thing that the exiles had to cling on to, the only thing that was giving them any reason to eat a meal, to work each day, to try to make an existence as an exile living in captivity, was the fact that Jerusalem was still there and the temple was still there. But now in 585, a survivor comes from the city and says, it's gone. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. Now, happening at the exact same time is something incredibly, incredibly engaging. Because beginning in chapter 33, most of the rest of the message of Ezekiel is a message full of hope. If you've been reading it, Chapter 33, chapter 34, 35, judgment of Edom, 36, 37, 38, 40 to 48. Some of the most glorious passages of hope and splendor that are coming in all of the Old Testament prophets. So isn't that not what we would expect? Because now, in a point where there's absolutely no reason for earthly hope, the very things that the, the exiles were holding on to, the fact that Jerusalem still stood, the fact that the temple still stood, gone! You would think now the community would just be completely despondent, and they probably were. 
You would think now there would be no message of hope for the community. But now this is when the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir in Ezekiel and his message changes dramatically. Because from chapter 33 on to the end of the book, those 16 chapters, almost all of them are filled with hope for the future. Some of the most incredible promises that the Lord made to his people on the pages of the Old Testament are found in Ezekiel 33 to 48. And so now Ezekiel's message transforms into a message of hope. You see, because one of the really difficult lessons that God was trying to teach his people, your hope is not in a city. It's in me. Your hope is not in a building. It's in me. And I wonder, what are things that we put our hope in that maybe seem good? I mean, Jerusalem was the city that God had chosen. The temple was the building where his glory had resided. What are the things that we are putting our hope in that ultimately take our hope from completely hoping in the Lord? Because that's what God was trying to get after the heart of his people in. Because as you read the opening chapters of Ezekiel, as you read those first 24 chapters, you see the people of God had become spiritually quite lazy. They're like, we have Jerusalem, we're okay. We have the temple, we're okay. So obedience, eh, not really that interested in it. Doing what the Lord expects of us, not really that interested in it. We'll be fine, we'll be fine because we have Jerusalem will be fine because we have the temple. And so passionately walking with the Lord, having a heart after the Lord, walking in obedience was not really a priority. And so sometimes we fall into the same sort of trap. Well, I'm a Christian. I'll be okay. I go to church each Sunday. I'll be okay. Or I don't go to church each Sunday. I don't know what makes you okay in that sense. But there's things that, that we put our trust in that maybe even are good things. Maybe are even things that God established, like the city of Jerusalem, like the temple itself. But if they start to replace our ultimate trust in the Lord, and if they start to excuse our disobedience, our waywardness, our lack of spiritual zeal, then the Lord will ultimately destroy those things. But... We want to get to the good news. But you can't read Ezekiel, I don't think, and not be challenged. You can't read Ezekiel and not be challenged. And so if you've been reading Ezekiel and you've not been challenged, I would encourage you to go back and reread Ezekiel. We need to be in step with the Lord. We need to be aware of what he is saying, what he is doing, whether it's something we want to hear or not. And we can't put our trust in all the external things. We can't put our hope in even some of the good things that he has established if it is ultimately taking our heart from him. So beginning in Ezekiel 33, incredible, incredible message of hope. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. The exiles now apparently have nothing to live for, have nothing to hope in, and this is where God says, no, 
In fact, you have everything to live for. You have everything to hope in because you still have me. If everything in this life is taken from us, if everything that we have is stripped from us, if we still have the Lord, will he be enough? If we still have the Lord, will he be enough? He was telling Ezekiel's audience, I am. I am enough. You've lost everything, absolutely everything. And that last little shred of hope, I've just allowed to be destroyed by the Babylonian armies. But you still have me, so you still have everything you need. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. One of the best-known passages from Ezekiel. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very, very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. What an incredible vision. What an incredible vision. We're going to be given a little bit of interpretation in the next section, 11 to 14. But I want to pause here because I'm sure as Ezekiel saw this, he was probably completely blown away. And hopefully, even though this is one of the better-known passages of Ezekiel, hopefully we are equally blown away by this vision that the Lord gave to his servants. In the Spirit, Ezekiel is taken to a valley, but this is a valley like none other before seen by Ezekiel. Because this is a valley that is filled with bones. Filled with with bones. Now initially Ezekiel may have thought are these animal bones, but no, in fact these are all human bones. And we are told in verse 2 that not only is the valley filled with many 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 bones, but these bones are very 
very dry. So a couple of things that probably would have struck Ezekiel right off the bat. First of all, why had these people not been buried? Because in the ancient world, even more so than today, in the ancient world, one of the most desecrating things you could do to a body was leave it unburied. In the ancient world in particular, if you left a body unburied, that was one of the most defiling, desecrating things that you could do. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you hang a body that's been executed as a warning for the people, that body must not remain unburied at sunset. Before the sun sets, that body must be placed in a tomb. Remember the Philistines, when they got a hold of Saul and his sons, in order to desecrate the bodies, they hung them on a wall, defiling them and dishonoring them. And remember, what do the men of Jabesh-Gilead do? They come and they take the bodies down by night and bury them. When Jesus is dying on a cross, the Jews come to Pontius Pilate. What do they say? They say, the bodies must not remain on the cross at sunset because this is a Sabbath. It's the Passover Sabbath. It's a holy Sabbath. The bodies must be removed before the sun sets. Deuteronomy 28 says actually one of the curses of the Lord is to deny bodies burial. Bodies that are laid out in a field to be eaten by the birds of the air and the wild animals of the field, they are under a curse from the Lord. So this valley of dry bones that Ezekiel sees, certainly one of the first things that he must have wondered is why were these bodies not buried? Why were they under a curse? And why were they desecrating and defiling the land? Well, we're told in verse 2 that they were very, very, very dry. That means they had been there a long time. These are not those who had recently died. And the folks in the nearby towns just couldn't get to it. These are bodies that had been lying exposed, being defiled, defiling the land, desecrating the entire valley. They had been there a long time. And bones that are exceedingly dry in the ancient world would have thought of as exceedingly dead. I know in our mind it's kind of like you're either dead or you're alive, but moist bones or a recently killed animal would still have had some of the elements of life in it. But exceedingly dry bones would have indicated to Ezekiel absolutely, completely, utterly dead absent of any iota of life. And then in verse 3, the Lord does something that is incredibly provocative, that he frequently does of us. He asks Ezekiel a question. He asks Ezekiel a question. And I would oftentimes challenge each one of us to consider, what are the questions the Lord is asking you? What are the questions the Lord is asking us? Because if we are in a conversation with the Lord, he's probably asking us some questions. So he asked Ezekiel a question. As Ezekiel is looking at this valley of utterly dead, completely defiled, under a curse, desecrated 
human bones. The Lord says, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a very shrewd answer. He doesn't say yes, because I don't think he's quite convinced that this valley of utterly, completely dead bones could ever live. So he doesn't say yes, but he doesn't say no either. Because I'm sure there's part of him that's saying, well, why is the Lord asking me this? The Lord is asking me a very interesting question. So he gives an incredibly wise answer. He says, oh, Lord, only you know. Only you know. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel in verse 3 says, only you know. Verse 4 to me, is one of the most important aspects of this vision that the Lord gave to Ezekiel. Because now the Lord expects Ezekiel to participate. Ezekiel is not just going to be an observer. He is being shown some things. And the Lord absolutely is the main agent acting here. But Ezekiel is expected to participate. And what Ezekiel is told by the Lord, prophesy. To these bones. Speak to these bones the word of the Lord. Look at that last phrase in verse 4. Dry bones hear the word of the Lord. You know, we talk about the word of the Lord a lot. It's a phrase that I use a lot. It's something that is absolutely vital for us to be immersing ourselves in exposing ourselves to, talking about the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Because in this case, what is the word of the Lord going to do? The word of the Lord is going to make what is dead come to life. The word of the Lord is going to make what is dead come to life. That's the power of the word of the Lord. That's the power that our God has when he speaks. Think of creation. There is nothing. And God speaks. Let there be. And there is. He doesn't have to wave his hands. He doesn't have to get some stuff and work really hard. All he has to do is speak. The power of the word of the Lord. When Lazarus is lying dead in a tomb, what does Jesus do? He simply speaks. Lazarus, come out. And there again, the word of the Lord takes what is dead and makes it alive. So Ezekiel is being shown a tremendous vision, but he is expected to actively participate. How does he participate? By prophesying, by speaking the word of the Lord. Is the word of the Lord on your lips? Is the word of the Lord on your lips? Are you trying to speak the heart and the counsel of the Lord? Or are you just talking to fill the space? 
Are you just talking because silence can be awkward? Is the word of the Lord in your heart? Because if the word of the Lord is in your heart, the word of the Lord will be on your lips. If the word of the Lord is in your heart, the word of the Lord will be on your lips. And if the word of the Lord is on your lips, the Lord can use you to bring life to what is dead. If the word of the Lord is in your heart, the word of the Lord will be on your lips. And if the word of the Lord is on your lips, you can bring life to what is dead. Incredible. Incredible. The next part of this vision, it gets a little grisly. We've got some budding doctors in our midst. This wouldn't cause them to wince or look away, but for many of us it would. Because all of a sudden, as Ezekiel begins to speak the word of the Lord to these bones, these bones start to rattle. There's a great shaking, and these bones come together. But the human is not built from the outside in. The human is built from the inside out. So the first thing that Ezekiel sees is some sinews. We would call them tendons and ligaments. You can ask Elizabeth or Jeff. They'll let you know what tendons and ligaments do. But the first thing that Ezekiel sees is a little bit grotesque if you're not used to seeing the inside of a human body because these bones that are exceedingly dry now come together. They join bone to bone with a great rattling sound and now the God, God miraculously begins to provide tendons and ligaments and they are joined together. And next, he provides what the Hebrew Bible calls flesh. This would have been the organs and the muscles and everything that's the next layer. Well, imagine a body without any skin. I mean, we would all look away. This is what Ezekiel is seeing. But God is saying, look at my miraculous power. When you speak my word, look at the life that is unleashed. But the bodies do not remain just flesh-covered for long because then the next thing that Ezekiel sees is the Lord covers them with skin. And now they look like bodies in the way that Ezekiel is used to seeing bodies. But even after they've come together bone to bone, even after the tendons and ligaments have joined them together, even after they've been covered with flesh, even after they have been covered with skin, there's still something missing. They are not alive yet. The NIV repeatedly uses the word breath in this passage. And probably that's as good as a translation as any. Because the translator here is given a tough challenge. Because there's a single word in Hebrew, ruach. Ruach can mean spirit. So whenever you see the word spirit in the Old Testament, almost always the word that stands behind that is ruach. Ruach can mean the spirit of God. It can mean the spirit that lives in you, that immaterial part of you that is not sinews and bones and flesh and skin. But ruach can also mean breath. Exact same word. And you can see how, in fact, there is a similarity between spirit and breath. But ruach can also mean wind. 
And there is absolutely no way to know how the word is intended to be used except with the context. And it's interesting because particularly when you're dealing with the Lord, it's very hard to discern between the spirit of the Lord and the breath of the Lord. When God breathed into Adam, when Adam was very much like these bodies, everything except Ruach. When God breathed into him, was it simply God breathing his breath? Was it God breathing his spirit? Probably either one is acceptable. When Jesus in the Gospel of John says, receive my spirit, and then he breathes, the breath of Jesus is probably the spirit himself. So anyways, a, a real challenge here. So some of your Bibles here in 37 are going to be using the word spirit, and that's probably fine as well. NIV is using the word breath. But it's interesting because when he is supposed to prophesy to the four winds, that also is the word ruach. And usually when four is designated, it absolutely does mean wind. So this whole idea of spirit, breath, and wind, a single Hebrew word, is used almost always when either of those three or any of those three is intended. But what is missing is the breath of God. What is missing is the Spirit of God. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit brings life. When God breathes on us, when God pours his spirit on us, when God fills us with his spirit, when God anoints us with his spirit, all the different ways the scriptures describe the impartation of God to us, there is life. There is life. You know, we look to so many things in this world to try to find life. We look to so many things in this world to try to satisfy us. But life comes from the Spirit of God. Life comes from the breath of God. And so these bodies that are lifeless but now fully materially composed, when the Spirit of God is given to them, when the breath of God is given to them, they come alive. They come alive. And they're a vast, vast army. So I'm sure Ezekiel was wondering, Lord, you know, how is this going to be fulfilled? When, when is this going to happen? And we're getting a little low on time here, but let's see what the Lord immediately offered as an initial interpretation of this vision. Picking it up in verse 11, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Why? Because they say, remember now, you understand Ezekiel's audience at this point. You understand what they have been through through the last 12 years. You understand what news they just heard. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. What are they saying? What are they saying? Verse 11 tells us what they were saying. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. 
That's what they were saying. Ezekiel, there's nothing. Our bones are dry. Our hope is gone. And we are cut off. Why even bother? Why even get up in the morning? Why even pretend? Why even fake it? What's the point? That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. And the Lord says, no. You have everything. You have everything to live for. Because you have me. That valley that Ezekiel saw, can these bones live? What is utterly and completely and totally dead? Can it ever, can it ever live again? Well, the Lord's resounding answer is yes. Yes, it can. Picking it up in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, not the bones, the people without hope. Ezekiel, this is what I want you to say to these who have no hope. Prophesy to them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The Lord says, with me, there is always hope. With me, death is never the final word. With me, death is never the final word. The applications of this passage are as broad as the Lord himself. Was the Lord going to restore these exiles to the land of Israel? Yes. In 539, he did. Was the temple going to be rebuilt? Yes. In 516, the temple was rebuilt. The people of God were again living in the land, again making sacrifices at a temple. But if you read Malachi, Malachi said, no, this is not it. This is not Ezekiel 37. This is not as good as the promise gets because something far better than living in Jerusalem is coming. Something far better than killing a goat at a building is coming. You see, the implications, the applications of Ezekiel 37 are as broad as the Lord himself. God is the God who brings life out of death. God is the God who takes what is completely and totally dead, destroyed, without any human hope, and his word is spoken over it, and his spirit is breathed into it, 
and it comes to life. It comes to life. And the final, final vindication of this will be when Jesus Christ returns. Because when Jesus Christ returns, what's going to happen? Everybody that's in the grave is going to come out. Everyone who has ever died is going to be receiving a body forever. So Ezekiel has hints of that in this passage. But it's more than that. It's not just holding on and waiting to that glorious day when Jesus Christ returns and when all of us will be raised to new imperishable bodies. It is that. But it's the hope that we have right now. It's the hope that we have right now. Remember what they said in verse 11. Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. And we are cut off. Every single one of us in this life navigates regularly discouraging circumstances, disappointing circumstances, circumstances that appear hopeless to us. Into each one of these circumstances, the Lord asks us, can this situation live? Can this situation turn around? Lord, you know. Lord, you know. But what the Lord says is, speak my word. Speak my word, because through my word, there is life. And as you speak my word, you give away for my spirit. And where my spirit comes, there is life. Ezekiel 47 is an incredible, incredible vision out of this phenomenal temple that has never been built and I don't think ever will be built. Out of this phenomenal temple, there flows a little trickle. It's just a little trickle. But as it goes a little further, it's, it's more of a creek. And as it goes a little further, it's kind of like a small river. And it goes a little further, and it becomes a river that you can't even swim across. And what is in that river? Life. Every manner of fish. What is on either side of that river? Life. Life. Every fruit tree bearing its fruit at all times. The river of God is the Spirit of God is life. We are living in a world of death. All around us is death. Whether it's the natural death of a loved one, whether it's the death-inducing decisions that a sinful world makes, whether it's the decay of just a fallen world, all around us is death. All around us is that valley of dry bones. But the Lord says hopelessness is not the final answer. Death is not the final answer. My word, the word of the Lord, brings life. My spirit, the breath of God, brings life. In whatever time the Lord gives us, we have the opportunity to bring life to a dying world. As his word is in our hearts, as his word is on our lips, we have the opportunity to bring life to a dying world. And as we give an open welcome to the Spirit of God, the Spirit brings life. Son of man, can these bones live? Yes, they can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much just for the incredible power of your word. When you speak, mountains crumble. When you speak, creation itself is in upheaval. 
But as you were reminding and challenging us to consider today, when you speak, the dead come to life. As Ezekiel prophesied over that valley of dry bones, they came to life. And Lord, you have given us your word. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the areas of hopelessness in our own lives. Forgive us for the areas of discouragement in our own lives. Forgive us for the way that we sound like those exiles. Our bones are dry, our hope is gone, and we are cut off. Because, Lord, you are so much greater. You are so much greater. And we pray, Lord God, that you would stir in us incredible faith, incredible trust, not in an earthly circumstance, not in what we see with our natural eye, because that was the mistake of putting all of their hope in Jerusalem, putting all of their hope in the temple. But, Lord, you were saying, no, 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 put your hope in me, because you will never be defeated. You will never be destroyed. And death itself could not hold your son captive. The resurrection is one of the most glorious, incredible, powerful displays of who you are and what you are all about. It is death being consumed in life. It is you declaring, I am life. My spirit is life. My word is life. And I pray, Lord God, that you would find each one of us fully agreeing, fully believing, and fully participating with you in speaking your words of life to a dying world. And Jesus, we pray all of this in your name alone. Amen.